Welcome back to the Core EM Podcast. Core content for anyone, anywhere, and just in time. This is the official podcast of the NYU Bellevue EM Residency Program. I'm Anand Swami Nathan. And I'm Jenny Beckesme. So Jenny, what do you got on tap for today? Well, this week I had the most amazing case and I just, I can't stop talking about it. So I wanted to tell you about it so I could pick your brain for management strategies. Would that be cool? Yeah, it sounds great. I love how these cases come up and we all have this experience. We see something cool and we just don't want to let it go. I know. I'm like, I'm such a broken record. I'm like, have you heard my case yet? Have you heard my case yet? So what was it? I mean, we see, we see so many patients every day, Jenny. What could possibly have really set you off? three and a half years into your residency. All right, well, here we go. So it's around 10 o'clock at night and I have a patient that's brought in by EMS and the chief complaint is hematemesis. So he comes in, he looks pale and diaphoretic and he literally has blood all over his face and his neck like a vampire. He looks like a vampire from a TV show. He's brought immediately into the recess room um, and his initial vital signs are totally normal. He's got a normal blood pressure, normal heart rate. He's got a normal O2 sat. Uh, maybe he's breathing a little bit fast, but nothing really out of the ordinary. But despite these totally normal vital signs, he the first thing I was struck by was just how sick he looked. He looked really bad. He looked super uncomfortable. He keeps writhing around on the stretcher, and he's really pale and really sweaty. So at this point, what are the first things that be going through your mind, Swami? I wouldn't say that I'd be panicking, but there would definitely be a sense of urgency here, starting off simply with the fact that he's got hematemesis, which we know these patients can have really bad outcomes. The things that I would be thinking about, though, in a visibly uncomfortable patient are things like aortic dissection, AAA, perforated viscous, and subarachnoid hemorrhage. Now, again, in this case, he's got hematemesis, so that changes my differential. Obviously, subarachnoid hemorrhage, not really high up there. But the things that I'm going to be thinking about with hematemesis and a very uncomfortable patient would be perforated viscous and aortic pathology, specifically something that has an aortoenteric fistula. And those are going to be very high up on my list. Yeah. And those are all scary diagnoses. So I was a little scared. Yeah. So I first look at him and I'm immediately beginning to prepare mentally and a little bit physically for the need to possibly intubate him. I mean, he's definitely maintaining his airway now and he's not vomiting now, but he looks uncomfortable with the amount of blood on his face and on his chest. I was really concerned that he might just start vomiting blood again. Do you have any thoughts on that? No, I think that's exactly the way that you have to think about this because patients with GI bleeds are often disasters. They can decompensate compensate rapidly, and you don't know where the bleeding is. One of our attendings used to always tell me that a GI bleed is like a stab wound or a gunshot to the belly. You don't know what's bleeding. No matter how good they look in front of you, they can crap out any time. And if you think the patient needs to be scoped, then I would prefer that they're intubated before they get scoped. I think that helps with both GI's management as well as your feeling of security. So I would be ready to intubate this patient very early, and I want them to be intubated before they open up and start bleeding more. Once there's significant hematemesis, the airway is going to be extremely challenging, to say the least. Exactly. And if I'm going down that road, I would definitely consider dropping an NG tube early on to decompress the stomach, get that blood out, have two suctions set up, and I'd get lots of extra hands on deck. I like using standard geometry video laryngoscopy for these patients if you have it. So that would be something like either your stores or your glide scope, but with the blade that looks like your regular DL Mac blade. And what this allows is that your helpers can see where you are because they've got video and they can actually direct the suction themselves and offload that from you so that you're just looking for the airway structures. 
Without the video, this can be much more difficult. But I like the standard blade because there's a lot of fluid. It can cloud up your uh, your optics. It can cover your optics. And this way you can easily switch to direct visualization. Those are great tips. I love that. So what I did is I gave him some antiemetics and he was able to assure me that he didn't feel even remotely nauseated anymore. Um, so I, I put a pause on tubing him right then. Although I, I told him, if you even look at me funny, mister, I am intubating you. <laughs> uh, and I started to get some more of his history. Uh, he's this healthy guy. He's got no medical history. He's young. He's like, in his thirties or something. Um, and he says that the day prior to the day he came in, he had one episode of just normal, non-bloody, non-bilious emesis. He didn't really think too much about it. And then over the course of today, um, he says he just didn't really feel great. You know, he had a little kind of discomfort or tightness or something in his chest, but nothing that he thought too much about. And then this evening though, he started to feel a lot worse. And then suddenly just out of nowhere, he vomited. And what, the EMS guys later described as about a half a liter of blood. And then according to the bystanders, he syncopized and then he vomited another half a liter of blood. So he lost about a liter of blood in just two episodes of hematemesis and he fainted. So that's, that's pretty much all the history. There's no more than that. Now, after the antiemetics, um, he no longer feels nauseated at all, but he's complaining of severe pain in his back. Like he just can't get comfortable. So now I'm trying to put together what's going on. I get an EKG, which is pretty normal. Um, and I get an upright portable chest x-ray, which also looks pretty normal. He's got like kind of a big heart, but nothing really that impressive on it. Uh, and I'm trying to think what would give this guy hematemesis and severe back pain. And I look at him and I've got this seriously distressed guy with back pain. So like you said, my mind immediately goes to aortic, dis aortic dissection, but I can't quite put that together with the hematemesis unless of course he had an aortoenteric fistula. But my understanding of those, obviously I've never seen one is that they just vomit massive amounts of blood and they're like dead before you even have a time to see them. So I think, dissection probably would be really bad and I'm keeping that in mind, but I don't really know how to put it all together. Yeah, I think this is really tough. There's lots of red flags. Obviously he hematemesized red flag in and of itself, and then he syncopized and then hematemesized again. So all of this sounds really bad. Something very bad is clearly going on in this guy, but without that medical history, without any medications, without any chronic medical issues, it's hard to know exactly where to go. Dissection is still high on my list, given the description of how he appears. Now, could he have an aerodynamic communication like you talked about? It's possible. I've only seen a couple of these, and they were both in post-surgical repair after an aortic dissection of the arch. And so these patients had some kind of hardware in there, and that eroded through, and then you know the arch and the esophagus lie very close together, so it creates this fistula in between. The patients that I've seen, they had a ton of bleeding, and they're not usually stable, although you, know, you can have that herald bleed, which maybe this guy had. But he sounds like a little bigger than a herald bleed. So, uh, you know, I would think about aortic dissection, aeroenteric fistula. I'd be considering esophageal tears. And I'd also strongly be considering a perforated ulcer because that can definitely cause abdominal and back pain. And obviously, those patients are going to have hematemesis as well. Yeah, of course. So so now at this point, I have given him several doses of morphine and he really doesn't feel that much better. I pull over the ultrasound to do a bedside echo thinking, well, if I have a pericardial effusion, that's it. I've got a dissection. I'll call the CT surgeons before I even go to the scanner. I do the echo and for some reason, I'm really only able to get one decent view. For the parasternal long, I can see the heart and has no wall motion abnormalities. It's got a good squeeze and there's definitely no pericardial effusion. But when I try and get all my other views, just for completeness, 
sake, I can't get images at all. When I go for the sub xiphoid, I can't even find the heart. It's just like it's not there. So normally I would say that this is operator issue and just need somebody else looking, but I've seen you ultrasound and I doubt that this was just an operator issue making it difficult for you to find a sub xiphoid view. So again, I'd have to see what exactly was going on, but you know, I would worry that there's something obscuring your view. When we talk about ultrasound, you know, fluid doesn't really obscure your view. Sometimes that actually makes it easier. The big thing that obscures your view is usually gas. So if you're looking in the belly and you're looking for a triple A, the thing that makes it difficult for us oftentimes is either that the patient's really fat and I can't get through all that fat or what's more likely is bowel gas. So I would be thinking, is there gas that's obstructing your view? But again, I didn't see the images. I'm not sure that that's what it would have crossed my mind right at that point. But in retrospect, thinking about it, that's usually what makes ultrasound imaging difficult. Yeah, it airs the enemy of ultrasound, right? Exactly. So, so now I've given him several rounds of morphine. He doesn't look super comfortable, but I think he's reasonable to travel. I, I agree with you. I was thinking maybe he had like perforated a duodenal ulcer or something, and that could definitely give him some back pain in the hematemesis. But we're also still not convinced that his aorta isn't involved. So we just decide we're going to scan his chest and his abdomen with contrast and just get a good look at everything. Uh, I literally wore my mask, my gown, and my gloves to the scanner, and I didn't put down my laryngoscope or my ET tube the entire time we had him in the scanner. I had suction set up. I had the attending there. I had several nurses and the pharmacist with the meds all with me because the last thing we wanted was a CT scan airway disaster. We were ready if we had to do it, as, as ready as I think we could have been, but what do you think about that? Yeah, this is tough. You know, we call the CT scanner sometimes the tube of truth. It is also the tube of death, right? That's where patients who are sick go to die. It's either the CT scanner or the MRI. I've had patients crash in CT scan. I've had to do intubations in the CT scanner. They're never fun. They're never good because you don't have everything you need. At the same time, you don't know what's going on in this guy. You need some kind of diagnostics to figure it out. Could a chest x-ray have given you the answer? I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. It's hard to know. Chest x-ray can be so limited at times. So I think the guy's going to get a CT scan. You got to make sure he doesn't have the dissection or some kind of communication. If he's got a perforation of an ulcer, you may pick that up on CT scan as well. So the CT scanner is going to be really helpful. Yeah, you should have all that prep. And I think one of the things you talked about was having your gown, gloves, and mask all the time. And something that we haven't talked about to this point, but when these patients come in with GI bleed, sometimes we rush in to take care of the patient. We forget to protect ourselves and our team. Everybody should have gowns. Every Everybody should have masks. Everybody should have gloves. Maybe you should have two sets of gloves on, but you got to make sure you take care of your personal protection. And in this case, again, I know you have to go to CT scan to get the diagnosis. So you go with everything. That's the way to do it. Absolutely. And I do, I want to comment. I love the two sets of gloves. I, I, I do that for trauma airways and bloody airways. I put on even like two, three, maybe even four sets of gloves. Just as one gets horrible, <laughs> I can peel it off and I'm still ready to, ready to go. It's great. Absolutely. Okay, so we got to the scan. The, we got the scan. It was totally uneventful. I breathed this eye of relief, although I still didn't take my my gown and gloves off. Uh, he's still having a lot of pain. So at this point, I switched over to fentanyl pushes, thinking maybe that would help him more. And then we see the scan. And Swami, the scan was amazing. There's massive pneumopericardium and pneumomediastinum. And we immediately get a call from the radiologist that it appears to be consistent with a Boerhaave syndrome. Boerhaave syndrome. Can you believe it? Yeah, I, I have not seen a Boerhaave syndrome ever. I mean, I've seen it in textbooks. I've read about it. I've never actually seen a patient with yeah, it. This is a pretty cool diagnosis. And, and you know, you saw pneumopericardium, which perfectly explains why you couldn't get the images of the heart that you wanted, right? There exactly. was air that there was, was blocking air there. you. So, you know, I would say this is one of those keys. The ultrasound people are, are going to say the same thing. If you're really good at ultrasound, you know you're doing it well, and you see that, 
you actually might have been able to make the diagnosis based on that. I don't think I would have made the diagnosis of pneumopericardium based on my ultrasound. I don't think my skills are quite that good, but I know some of the really good people would have been like, oh yeah, that's pneumopericardium. And they would have already had that diagnosis before they went to the CT scanner. So uh, another plug to increase our skills in ultrasounds that are more comfortable making these diagnoses. But I think a lot of people are going to find when you find Borjavs, which again, I've never even seen one. When you see these, you're probably going to find them on CT scan or maybe the x-ray which is really really indicative of the disease or or it clues you into it is going to give you the diagnosis yeah i went back and i scrutinized that chest x-ray after the fact to see if i could see any pneumopericardium on it but i really couldn't but it, it, you know it was a portable not great quality chest x-ray sure, so sure. and possibly the air hadn't completely dissected into those structures at the time you got that chest x-ray so it didn't give you the answer at that point yeah. And speaking of the rarity of this, we had one of our old timer attendings there that day. And even she said she'd only ever seen it once before. So I was really pretty excited. <laughs> it's a pretty cool diagnosis. Again, I think that I would be rushing over to Google to find out what to do once oh, I had yeah. actually seen it. Yeah. So next I had to figure out the management of the condition in my head. I'm thinking, oh, no, 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 no. This is one of those big, like five deadly chest pains and things. And I better do something and do something quick. So immediately I called the CT surgeons. And but beyond that, honestly, there's not a whole lot for us to do in the emergency department. Yeah. And I'm going to go ahead and guess that when you call the CT surgeons, they're like, Borhav, who? I'm sure that they were no more familiar with this disease than than you or I are. And when I'm talking about um, CT, we're not talking to a seasoned CT surgeon surgery attending. We're usually talking to a first year fellow or maybe a PA. They yeah. probably didn't have very much experience with this either. So my guess is that the delay in them coming down to the emergency department was just long enough for them to Google Borhobs and exactly. figure out what the, you know, we were all doing the same thing at the same time. Everyone's exactly. Googling it except for possibly the patient who doesn't know what's going on, but everyone else is hitting Google trying to figure this out. And, and you're right. I, I Googled it after you told me about the case and I was like, oh, there's really not much to do except get a CT surgeon involved, make the patient comfortable, control the airway if you need to, and and just cross your fingers and wait to a certain extent. Right. And then the only other thing for you to do in the ER is to start the broad spectrum antibiotics. And then some people even recommend antifungals. And that's because sepsis is one of the major causes of morbidity and mortality in these conditions. So you want to get that you know, on board immediately. So if you think Wait, about so it, you're obviously, saying that having GI secretions dissect into your mediastinum is bad. Yeah, that's bad. That's, yeah. you know, kind of a, a, a setup for an infection. Sepsis death. Yeah, yeah. it sounds, sounds terrible. <laughs> And then just the other thing is pain control. You know, I was having such a hard time with this guy. Uh, I ultimately ended up putting him on a fentanyl drip while we waited for the surgeons uh, just so that I could keep him a little bit comfortable. And then CT surgery came and off he went to the operating room. Very cool. And, and, you know, that pain thing is important. And the other one is the antiemetics, right? Keeping him from vomiting again, because my guess, again, is if they start vomiting, they increase their intrathoracic pressure, they are going to make this process worse. So you really don't want them to do that. So hit them with high uh, doses of antiemetics, give them whatever they need for pain control. This guy's got good vital signs. And then I, they go to the operating room. I, I kind of would like to see the case and see what it is exactly that CT does with these patients. I guess they're looking for some kind of a defect that they can stitch up. So they're going to get probably rigid um, uh, uh, EGD to take a look and see what's there. Um, you know, I, I, beyond that, I'm not really sure what they're doing in the operating room. You know, I think that they ended up opening up his chest actually to find wow. the defect and, and repair it. And then he ended up with, you know, multiple chest tubes draining out for several days. Huh. 
he had to be on TPN like immediately because he wasn't going to be able to eat for a while. Right. I think it's a pretty good thing. I mean, if you do an EGD, all you're going to do is the best you're going to find the tear, which isn't really going to help you. You can't repair it through that. So, right. You probably have to do some major washout too, I would think. I mean, I'm not a surgeon. I don't know. Right. Because they've got all that spillage of stuff. Hopefully, the guy didn't have like a big burger right before he had his Borhobs. That would be terrible. (laughs) Interesting. So, these patients are going to go to the operating room. You're going to cover them with antibiotics. You're going to give them pain control. You're going to give them antiemetics. Wow. It's a really cool case. And I I mean, I'm not saying that I hope I see one of these, but at least now I have a little bit of an idea of what to expect when I do see it. And hopefully that those tips on the ultrasound also will help some people maybe key into the diagnosis before they get the CT scan. So Jenny, any other big take-home points? You've talked about this case with quite a number of people. What have you come up with of things that you need to know about Borhobs? So the first is just to keep esophageal rupture on your differential diagnosis for those deadly causes of chest pain, which is what we think of it as, but it also could be causing epigastric or back pain. We don't see it often, but it is a real thing. I can assure you it's a real thing. So second, Borhoff syndrome is the spontaneous rupture of the esophagus that is caused by a sudden increase in intraesophageal pressure as is seen in forceful vomiting. So if the patient presents with the right symptoms and any vomiting history, I mean, this guy only had vomited that one time before it was bright red blood, just keep this diagnosis in mind. And then there are some other like less common causes of Borhob that you should keep in mind. And those are things like childbirth, seizure, prolonged coughing or laughing, which is sad, or weightlifting. And then third, ED management is essentially ABCs, symptom control, and broad spectrum antibiotics, and maybe even antifungals. And then last, as soon as you make this diagnosis, get the CT surgeon on board immediately because the length of time to their definitive treatment is directly related to their mortality. Very interesting. And, you know, we did a little bit of a foam search. Didn't find much out there. We found a good post on life in the fast lane. We'll drop that in the show notes. I found another one from Radiopedia, which is a great site, and they've got some cool imaging and some information about the case and management. So take a look at those as well. And Jenny, I think you're going to put together a little bit of a post for our blog as well, since really there isn't much out there on this disease. Yeah, it would be nice if you could Google quick and find a good one, two, three. This is what you need to know about this when you're faced with it in the immediate moment. Absolutely. And we'll have that ready down the line. Well, that's going to be all for the Core EM podcast this week. Come on over and check out the site at coreem.net, where we've got a ton of great core content, emergency medicine. Don't forget to check out our Facebook page, follow us on Google Plus, and on Twitter, where our handle is at core underscore EM. Thanks, and see you all next week.